08205, Citizens United versus the FEC. Justice Kennedy has the opinion of the Court. The Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which is known as BICRA, was enacted by Congress in 2002. And BICRA, that, that act, incorporates a prohibition on certain political contributions and expenditures by corporations. Uh, that prohibition is in Section 441B of the Act. Section 441B prohibits corporations from making certain independent expenditures to support candidates for federal office. Citizens United and some amici have made various arguments to the effect that, the, that corporate political speech prohibition in a 441B would be invalid just as applied to the facts of this case, leaving the question of its facial validity to another day. There is, for instance, a preliminary argument that the film is something other than the functional equivalent of express advocacy for or against a candidate, so that the film should be exempt from the statutory ban under one of our precedents, Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life. We reject that argument. So these difficulties require us to ask, if the statutory prohibition applicable to corporate political speech is constitutional as a general matter. Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, one of this Court's cases, upheld a ban on corporate political speech. And as already noted, the McConnell decision in turn relied upon Austin. We conclude that those precedents now must be reexamined. The Court has recognized that First Amendment protection extends to corporations. In accord with this principle, a pre-Austin line of cases uh, forbids restrictions on political speech based on the speaker's corporate identity. Austin was the first time in this Court's history that a ban on independent expenditures by corporations for political speech was upheld. Uh, If the First Amendment has any force, it prohibits Congress from fining or jailing citizens or associations of citizens for simply engaging in political speech. Austin and its rationale, however, however, would allow the government to ban corporations from expressing political views through any media, including media beyond those presented uh, here, and in this case, such as by printing books. Political speech is indispensable to decision-making in a democracy, and this is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual. Austin's rationale would produce the dangerous and unacceptable consequence that Congress could ban political speech of media corporations. Media corporations are now exempt from 441B's ban on political speech, but they amass wealth like other business corporations. So under Austin, the government could could diminish the voice of a media business. There is no precedent for permitting this under the First Amendment. I have filed a separate opinion that Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, and Justice Sotomayor have joined. We agree with Part 4 of the Court's opinion, upholding the the reporting and disclosure provisions of the Bipartisan Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, or or BICRA. We dissent from the Court's decision to strike down a key part of that statute, Section 203, and and to overrule both Austin against Michigan Chamber of Commerce and a portion of McConnell against the FEC. As one of the joint authors of the opinion in McConnell, I must emphatically disagree with today's law-changing decision. When Justice O'Connor and I were working on our opinion in that case, we thought that two important propositions of law were so well settled that they needed no special defense. 
The first, that Congress may place special restrictions on the use of corporate funds in election campaigns had been generally recognized for a century or more. And the second, that there is a relevant distinction between corporate speech about general issues on the one hand and corporate speech specifically advocating the the election or defeat of 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 a candidate on the other was not only established by our earlier cases, but had also helped shape the the extensive debates in Congress that led to the enactment of the statute. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Burke, and welcome to the 34th. Today with Jeff Clements, constitutional attorney and founder of American Promise. Hey, Tina, thanks. So tell us a little bit about the work you're doing at American Promise. Uh, I know you're working on putting the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. How do we get there? What's the process? Well, it's a big process. As you know, constitutional amendments are, in a lot of ways, uh, how we've done everything that's uh, really great about American democracy, literally from ending slavery and uh, driving civil rights into the Constitution, women having the right to vote, young people, uh, 18, 19, 20-year-olds voting, electing senators. You know, we sometimes take for granted that those good things just happened, but they were were constitutional amendments that the people had to put into the Constitution. And what we're doing now is taking on the problem um, of our democracy, the biggest problem, I think, which is the domination by big donors, by concentrations of money and global corporations, of our political system, and it happened because the Supreme Court created a a constitutional crisis in in the Citizens United decision, and so we need a constitutional amendment to reverse that decision and empower people instead of money. So that's what the 28th Amendment is all about, and that's why we created American Promise, to ensure that every American can get involved in this fight and that we can win it as fast as we need to. Excellent. Uh, So as an attorney, you've been able to to see the progress of how we ended up at the Citizens United decision. There were some court cases that came before that that sort of laid the groundwork. Um, would you say the first one was Buckley v. Vallejo, or do you have a different opinion on that? Well, you know, in, in America, there's always uh, a lot of different um, versions of, of right. how we've had to take on big money and global and, and corporate power, and, and that's natural. I mean, the founders of our republic knew that. The ancient Rome knew that. The, the threat to government of the people is always concentrated wealth, and right. that turns into, you know, plutocracy and oligarchy and fascism and all kinds of various forms of it. And so, you know, uh, Americans have always had to be vigilant about it, and the Supreme Court has frequently made big mistakes that empowered Mm -hmm. the powerful and hurt most Americans. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we sometimes forget that, especially progressives forget it sometimes because, you know, you think of the Supreme Court as the driver of the civil rights and the Warren Court and Brown versus Board of Education. But actually most of our history, the Supreme Court was the Dred Scott Supreme Court that said slaveholders are empowered and African-Americans aren't. And the Supreme Court in the 1800s, uh, created corporate rights, and you know we had a gilded age that was a lot like our own now. But yeah, for the, as you said, Tina, in the modern era, I think you know after the Nixon 
impeachment and mm-hmm. uh, resignation uh, before impeachment happened, uh, people um, realized just how corrupted our system was. And a lot of the Watergate scandal in the early 1970s was, in fact, a campaign finance scandal. Uh, corporations mm. were running money into the Nixon operation, the re-election campaign. There were bags of cash being moved, and all right. kinds of shenanigans. And we passed good uh, anti-corruption laws after Nixon was driven from the White House in scandal. And in the case you mentioned, Buckley versus Vallejo, Buckley versus Vallejo in the mid-1970s, the Supreme Court struck down really key parts of that law and that's the first time the Supreme Court said uh, that it's unconstitutional to limit spending in elections, that that violates uh, the First Amendment free speech rights. It's the uh, time when the Supreme Court um, did uphold some limits on contributions, mm-hmm. but it was really the first case where they started saying, hey, spending money is just free speech. Right. And Citizens United took that you know, 30 years later and put it on steroids and just said basically any money, anywhere, anytime, global, corporate, you name it, is just free speech and we can't limit it. And it's and that's what's caused so much damage. I agree. It seems to me that this argument that money is free speech is just completely bankrupt because there's no equity if that's true. People that have more money are entitled, entitled to ever-increasing amounts of free speech and the poor aren't. I don't see how you balance this argument. Um, Interesting. So there was a decision in Austin versus the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. I saw you tweeting about this the other day, and I found this a very interesting situation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I believe it has to do with um, corporate money in elections as well. Yeah, it sure does. And uh, you know, it's funny you ask about that. Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce was a, a, a Supreme Court case that came out of Michigan, and the Chamber mm-hmm. of Commerce there was challenging uh, the Michigan law at the time, this is back around 1990, in the late 1980s, and Michigan law, like a lot of states, said uh, that corporations should not and, and are not allowed to spend money to influence the outcome of elections. And uh, the Supreme uh, Court upheld that law. Hmm. This is before Citizens United. The Supreme right. Before Citizens United, we were allowed in America to say corporations are good in the economic area, you know, let them do business, but they don't mm-hmm. belong in elections. And, right. Um, the Supreme Court upheld that, but uh, in the case called Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce. But the reason I, I you know, I saw a, a wonderful one-act play actually in, in Boston last night uh, called Thurgood, and it was Thurgood mm. Marshall, the great. And AACP lawyer who argued and won Brown versus Board of Education, the first African American Solicitor General of the United States under Lyndon Johnson, and then on the Supreme Court, the first African American Supreme Court Justice. And he actually wrote that decision in Austin mm. versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, upholding okay. the rights of Americans to say we are equal citizens, that having more money or having a corporation doesn't give you a right to more political. Uh, say and I think it's interesting that a great civil rights icon recognized the civil rights aspects of Indeed. our right to have a clean, fair election system. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because when they talk about corporations being having the same natural rights as a U.S. citizen, an actual human being, I I get a little bit disturbed on that because it's obviously not true across the board they pick and choose or they cherry pick in which uh, natural rights they can bestow. 
it just doesn't make very much sense to me. So that was, I thought that was an interesting take, and it seems such a in such dramatic shift from that to Citizens United that you're kind of left with your breath open, going, ah, what happened here? Are you familiar with the Powell memo, uh, which was the memo that Justice Powell put out before he became a SCOTUS judge? It was in regards to the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, I sure am. Yeah, I talk about that in my book quite a bit. Oh, do you? Let's, okay, yeah. I was going to ask you about your book. You wrote this amazing book. Do you want to talk a little bit about your book and, and the Pell Memo both? Yeah, sure. I, I will, and, and thank you. I, um, so let me give you a bit of background if I, I can, okay. Tina. So, yeah. I, you know, I was a, um, a, a chief of the Public Protection Bureau in the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, and that's the bureau that does a lot of the uh, public law enforcement, right. so environmental laws, civil rights, health care, consumer protection, antitrust, um, financial services, you name it, uh, the laws that are intended to kind of make sure that, um, you, you know, our, our very uh, uh, aggressive economic activity, which can right. sometimes be very good, doesn't get out of hand and, and hurt people and, and, you know, destroy waters and lands and air and everything else. Uh, and that we have some balance. Those are our laws, and so the, the attorney generals in the states enforce those laws well. But I was finding in, in my legal work increasingly corporations asserting a right, essentially a constitutional right, not to be bound by those laws. So mm. the tobacco companies we litigated against, the tobacco companies claiming they had a free speech right to target children with cigarette advertising, uh, right. data companies saying they had a free speech right to take our prescription drug data and sell it and market it. Uh, Exxon now claims a uh, constitutional rights, basically not to be investigated for committing mm. fraud about climate and what they knew. So I started digging into this and trying to figure out, you know, where did this idea come from that corporations mm -hmm. somehow have constitutional rights to right. defy the law of the land. And yeah. uh, that's when the Powell memo came out, <laughs> came up. And yeah. it was a secret memo at the time written in about 1970 by a guy named Lewis Powell at that time was a lawyer. And I mentioned the tobacco companies. They were his clients. He was actually on the board of uh, one of the largest tobacco companies. Mm -hmm. uh, he lived in Richmond, Virginia, and he was an advisor to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And some of the tobacco companies back then, 1970s, some people may remember, uh, the evidence was becoming clear about the, the cigarettes will kill you, and the right. tobacco companies knew it, and that's when we first started getting warnings on cigarette packages and so on. Well, Lewis Powell um, was beginning to defend the cigarette industry and realizing the threats and he felt like corporations somehow had to go as he put it on offense and he mm -hmm. outlined in this memo basically a game plan to take over the courts democracy and the media the universities with much more aggressive uh corporate funding and corporate right. uh, interests being represented and he advised the chamber of commerce to get behind it and Two years later, Lewis Powell's on the Supreme Court, appointed by Richard Nixon. He wrote the first decisions of the Supreme Court ever to create this idea that corporations have free speech rights mm -hmm. that came to fruition in the Citizens United case. And right. you can look at the money and the actions of uh, the biggest corporations in the world and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to see that they took that memo to heart. But when Powell went on the Supreme Court, nobody knew he'd written this game plan memo to 
really increase corporate power to such a grave extent. So it's an interesting story. It's pretty shocking. Um, yeah. I think it would have been a good, uh, you know, uh, hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee when he was appointed to the court right. about what do you mean that corporation yeah. should take over the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, right. we didn't know it. He got on the court. Corporations uh, uh, won a lot of new power and privileges yeah. at his pen uh, writing for the court. And we're still dealing with the consequences today, especially after Citizens United. Yeah, definitely. Um, so... Have you also been following the McDonald versus U.S. case that, that's before SCOTUS currently? I, you know, I'm not an attorney, so this is my take on it. I, it seems to me that Judge Breyer is dismissing the idea that gifts from constituents um, are equal to pay-to-play, which just seems wrong to me. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, I haven't... Um I haven't seen Justice uh, Breyer in particular that, you know, okay. uh, opine about that. But what I what I can say is that um, there has been a kind of collapse in the idea of what is corruption in this country. Mm. Um, so, you know, we've seen um, several cases in recent years uh, where prosecutors have been unable to uh, sustain convictions against clearly corrupt actions. I mean, right. one congressman had $90,000 of cash in his freezer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the, the case you're referring to is the governor right, of Virginia right. who's, Correct, who yeah. got hundreds of thousands of dollars in gifts mm-hmm. um, to basically become a flack for the guy's business interests. Yeah. Um, you have Menendez in New Jersey uh, yeah. on trial, and he basically admits he got hundreds of thousands of dollars into his super PAC for, well, he went to work advocating for uh, the donor's interests, and he says, but the donor was just my friend. Right. <laughs> Some friend, <laughs> you know, and unfortunately the court is going along with this idea, and it's partly, that too comes out of Citizens United. If you, you know, Citizens United, that decision in 2010 that struck down the McCain-Feingold law the mm-hmm. Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act and, and open the floodgates to money. A lot of it is about um, basically denial about reality. And so they said, you know, unlimited spending in elections won't cause Americans to lose faith in democracy. Well, Which is that, that hasn't happened. Um, but the other thing they said was basically money alone doesn't corrupt and that, mm-hmm. and that spending on behalf of um, elected officials don't corrupt. And then cases since then, they've increasingly been describing, the Supreme Court describing our democracy as a basically where donors are represented and that that's not only okay, it's actually what democracy is. You represent donors. And that Mm. is really just wrong, un-American, and it, it is having its consequences in these corruption cases because if it's, you know, Sheldon Adelson can give, put $90 million into a super PAC right. and, and get policy that he wants, um, it makes, you know, a couple of Rolex watches and, you know, free vacation right. seem like peanuts. So yeah. the Supreme Court is just having a really hard time dealing with the, con- their, the consequences of their own bad decisions um, yeah. and where corruption is no longer corruption. And, and it's a real problem. Yeah, it's crazy because the quid pro quo is pretty clear. I think, um, so recently you had Stephen Klobuch, uh, who is in so many ways the poster child for this. This is a very wealthy individual, and he's absolutely bragging. He's bragging online about how if he pulls his money 
from the party, it would be a problem, and they should listen to what he's saying. I mean, he's not even trying to disguise what he's doing. At least with the, you know, you've had the Koch brothers in the past that are pretty much doing the same thing, but they're doing it more behind closed doors. This guy's just out in the open doing this. Uh, yeah. Do you think there's a difference between a guy like a Stephen Klobeck or a Koch brother versus a corporation, or are they pretty much sort of on the same par when it comes to uh, corporate finance laws and corruption? Uh, well, well, of course there's differences. You know, believe me, I'd be the first to say there's a difference between a corporation and a person. Right? So I think uh, okay. somewhere somebody said corporations are not people, right? Right. No, they're not. Uh, I agree with you on that. Yeah. So there, so there are differences. Um, but you know, one thing that isn't different is that uh, those with money and power want to use their money and power. Um, mm-hmm. to get more power. Um, right. That's just a truism, I think, whether it's a Democratic donor or a Republican donor. And that's yeah. why we have laws is we just, you know, we don't we don't sort of over moralize about it. We know people are people. And right. if you have if you feel really strongly about something and you have different tools to try to achieve it, um, a lot of money is a lot of power and people will use it. That's why we had campaign finance laws to make sure that that human tendency didn't deprive others of their of their rights and that's you know in a democracy you have laws so that the all people are represented and have equal representation so that's the problem now a Stephen Klobach who is a, a major donor to Democrats I believe yeah and and brags about you know stop insulting billionaires in Wall Street because you're hurting our feelings <laughs> and we're gonna you know we're gonna stop you know stop giving you the money you see that on the same on the Republican side too, during yeah, the tax, absolutely. the tax, you know, the tax giveaways uh, that yeah. uh, we just saw was basically a donor fest, and you know, give mm-hmm. me what I want, or I'm not making donations, and right. and they were not only admitting it, senators were admitting it. Lindsey Graham yeah. said, "We have to get this done. The donors are getting angry," <laughs> you know, so that it's just wide open. Now, I actually think corporations, of course, they're also will do whatever is legal to advance the, their profit interests. That's what they're designed for. And so they'll spend money in any way that advances their interests. So, um, but actually, in some ways, they're more subtle about it. <laughs> you know, they, right. they'll, they'll put it into the Chamber of Commerce or the Democratic right. Governors Association or the Republican or Governors Association or ALEC. Yeah. And you know, they, they like their PR um, to be good, so they're not likely to you know, be openly uh, bragging <laughs> like about it. And flagrant about it, but I think what isn't different is from a, a, a systemic perspective, from our political system being terribly damaged by this. The, the politicians know uh, where the money is coming from, whether it's a right. donor or a corporation, and whether they admit it or not, it influences what they do. And even the best-intentioned politician will be very well persuaded that if they get reelected, they'll be able to do good things. Therefore, they have to get reelected. Therefore, they don't right. want to antagonize donors, whether corporations or individuals. Therefore, they do what the donors and corporations want and not what the country needs. Yeah, it seems to me like it's a very vicious circle that they get caught up in, and they convince themselves that they're not engaging in any form of quid pro quo, but it's obvious that they are. If you look at legislation that's being passed, there's been this distinct uh, consolidation of wealth and power at the top, whether it's an individual or a corporation. It is all going funneling up to the top. There's no two ways about it. And this is happening with both parties because they're both placating the same sort of donor class type folks. That's right. Um, no question yeah. about it. 
So tell us a little bit about the Governor's Association loophole. This was something that I recently learned about via your website. Um, I didn't know that this was going on. So the corporations are basically funneling money, whether it's the Republican or the Democrats, funneling, funneling money into these um, associations and then the associations dividing up the money to the candidates based on what their needs are is how I read this. Is that about accurate? Yeah, that's basically right. And and it, it also follows from that, you know, egregious uh, decision in Citizens United. Um, so the Supreme Court created this, um, you know, phony rule, essentially, that if so-called independent expenditures, they're not directly into the campaigns, mm -hmm. therefore they're quote-unquote independent, Therefore, they don't corrupt. That's the logic of the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah, you're laughing, and most Americans do too. Nobody buys it except the Supreme Court. The right. candidates don't buy even buy it. Nobody believes that. And so, but that's what they say. So, therefore, people play by the rules of the game, which means, okay, right. I'm not putting it directly into the campaign. I'm putting it into Americans for Apple Pie or whatever the association right. is that then is going to spend millions of dollars to help their candidate or hurt the other candidate on the other side. And un unfortunately, people don't realize it because they have these kind of grand names, the Democratic Governors Association or the Republican Governors Association. They're actually not part of the party or anything. They're, they're associations like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And so right. they can, under this new rule, what used to be illegal, it's not illegal anymore because of the Supreme Court and its wisdom, they can spend unlimited money in elections. And if you ever go to one of these association meetings, and I've been, mm -hmm. uh, it is a lobby fest. Every corporation right. is very well represented and they can hobnob and dine and uh, hang out with the governors and um, they have attorney generals or, uh, associations too and the same thing happens. Mm. And they make uh, the corporations put cor money into these associations, uh, and the associations then spend the money to influence the outcome of our elections in the states. And so, you know, one of the biggest spenders here in Massachusetts was the Republican Governors Association in the in the last governor's election, right. uh, and had a huge impact. Um, but it's similar to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, so you'll read or, or, or hear on TV about, oh, the Democratic Governors Association is, is, is going to spend, you know, X amount of millions of dollars in such and such a state, or the Republican Governors Association is going to spend, you know, $80 million in this election cycle, or the Chamber of Commerce will brag it's going to spend $100 million to influence elections. Well, where did they get the money? Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't make money. They get it right. somewhere. Where right. they get it is Clearly. corporations. So <laughs> when you hear that corporations aren't actually spending much money in elections, and that was you know, overblown about Citizens United, they, well, they sure right. are. They just hide it very well by funneling it through these kind of associations. Absolutely. In fact, I was uh, just looking at the Open Secrets blog where they had <clears throat> said that 97% of the money in Utah in the last election cycle came from corporations. That's just insane. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like shocking. in Washington State in, in 2016, I believe it was, they had a ballot initiative about uh, labeling for genetically modified organisms in food. Right. And a huge amount of money, I think it was $29 million was spent. <laughs> on the ballot initiative. And something like uh, $50 came into that from in-state. All the rest was out-of-state 
big oh global corporations like PepsiCo and things right. like that. It's gross. It's just gross. It's I don't gross. know. I don't know what else to call this. So now you guys have been going state by state, passing resolutions on on the Twenty Eighth Amendment. I first came across your organization because you had one here in California, which we passed, which I'm very happy about. Then you went on to Washington State and a few others. So how many states have you guys uh, been successful in passing these resolutions in, and what states are you currently working on? Uh, well, we have 19 states so far, and I'm glad. You asked about that before we depress everybody so much about the problem. Right. <laughs> and it, it is a real deep problem. It is really gross. It is really corrupt. And we all know it. And so yeah. the question is, what can we do about it? And that's right. the really good news is there's no question we can do a lot about it. But it will, it, it, you know, we know the scope of the problem. It's not, there's no easy solution left. So right. we're going to do what is right, and we're going to win this constitutional amendment. It's going to reverse those Supreme Court decisions. We're going to be able to get the big money out of politics and get people back in. And the way to do that is this constitutional amendment. But it is hard. We need to get uh, 38 states to ratify the amendment. Um, The amendment needs to be proposed either in a convention or through Congress. Um, All of our amendments to date have come out of Congress. Um, You need two-thirds of Congress, which sounds like a hard lift, but believe me, Mm -hmm. it won't be the Congress that looks like today's that gets this out. We have a game plan for that, and and we're going to get this out by driving uh, citizen power at the local level to win local resolutions, state resolutions. We have a candidate pledge campaign to make sure that we get the Congress after 2018 and 2020 that looks that and will be one that will vote for this Happen. amendment. And if they don't, the, the people will know who's, who's for it and who's against it. Basically, we're going to force the question, do you stand with the donors or do you stand with your constituents and the American people? And so we're teeing up these states. As you said, California won a ballot initiative. Washington State did the same year in favor of the amendment. But so, right. too, did red states. Montana yeah. and Colorado are two of them. We're working wow. hard in Wyoming right now which um, is, is a very red state, but, you know, Al Simpson, the former senator from Wyoming, a Republican, yeah. is on our advisory council. We can Fantastic. win this anywhere. And so we've won 19 states so far. We haven't lost one um, which, because Americans are, are really, believe it or not, unified on this. It's something like 85% support yeah. this, want it to happen. And so we built American Promise to serve all Americans and to to be able to do what's really hard these days, which is cross-partisan successes like this. So it's pretty exciting, and we're beginning to see Congress paying attention and getting support there, too. You know, and I'm glad you're mentioning that this is bipartisan because I think that is an important point. Anything in this area should be bipartisan. This is something that's harming all Americans, whether you're on the left or the right. We can all see that this is a problem. And in fact, I think if we do get this passed, we can maybe return to having more sane conversations between the two factions. I think things are so out of hand at this point, and so many Americans uh, are really not clear. You know, they vote for Trump to drain the swamp, but then he, he's an oligarch and he appoints a bunch of corporation, uh, corporation revolving door sort of regulatory capture folks into his main positions. So it's, they're being told one thing and then another thing's happening, and, and this is going on with both parties. It's not, it's not a left or right side thing. So that's awesome. So I need to ask you a question just for clarification. So you, you said it's 38, stents, 38 states need to pass this, and then it goes into Congress. Now, once it goes into Congress, do two-thirds of the congressmen have to vote yes for this to be ratified? Or how, what's well, the technical? 
Yeah, so technically, under the Constitution, it actually goes the other way. So if you read okay, thank you. Article 5 of the Constitution, um, that's the one that provides for the amendment process. And right, right. all it says is that an amendment is proposed, and then it's ratified. So the proposing okay. the amendment is supposed to be done by two-thirds of Congress okay. or, or by a convention called by two-thirds of the states. So that's to propose an amendment. Now, all 27 amendments, including the Bill of Rights, have been proposed by Congress. So that means passed by two-thirds of Congress. Right. But then the second step is that it has to then be ratified in the states by, okay. by three-quarters of the states. So three-quarters of the states now is 38 states. Got so it. you might well ask, um, and I think the reason you uh, uh, um, thought that the states come first is because I said the states are coming first. And right, we the reason we do that, that. Yeah, so I'm glad <laughs> you asked. And the reason we do that is the same. It, it's, it's a tried-and-true method. Um, you know, women got the right to vote this way. Right. Uh, we, we got the senators elected. We, um, the Supreme Court said a progressive income tax was unconstitutional, and we won an amendment to get that reversed. And every time it started in the states. So the Congress in a corrupt system is going to be the Congress in a corrupt system. And if we try right. to just start there, we could never get two-thirds of Congress. Right. That the way yeah, we because get it would be their benefit. Exactly. They won under this system. They know this right. system. They, they, they can use their incumbent power in this system to, to, to win again. So I think what we have found in previous amendments and what we're discovering again is you don't bang your head against the wall in Washington. You go to, into the states. You let mm -hmm. it be from the bottom up, literally, every town, every community. Get these state resolutions that demand Congress do this. And, and, and so it's not a formal technical part of Article 5 of the Constitution. It's just a tried and true method to build up the kind of overwhelming citizen power that makes Congress do this. So we're getting the states, in a sense, in a sense to pre-ratify the amendment and, and make Congress do it. So we're winning these ballot initiatives which, and, and state resolutions which call for this amendment and build the right. pressure to make Congress do it. And then it will co Congress will have to propose the amendment, and then it has to go again through the 38 uh -huh. states. Okay. But by that time, the states will be ready to do it because we started right. in the states. We're building power in the states. Yeah, then that's a very solid plan. The momentum will be there, definitely. So um, in that light, you recently launched the Writing the 28th Amendment project, and I believe this is a, an effort to get citizens involved, like, like you're saying, at the local level. Would you like to explain a little bit about this project and how folks can uh, sign up, join in, and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, AmericanPromise.net is the website, all one word, AmericanPromise.net. And... Um, at American Promise, we have a whole bunch of programs, but they're all related and uh, are all about empowering Americans to drive this and make it happen. So you can sign up at AmericanPromise.net and get involved at whatever level and whatever way works for you. And here are some of the ways we do it. Um, we do American Promise associations in local communities. We now have 25 of those in many right. states. And they're local organizations of people. And you might have, you know, just if you're interested, and, you know, give us a call, drop us a line. And we'll start with four or five people who bring two or three people each. And we do right. what's called an inviting team call. And then, there's, then if they decide, yeah, this is for me, I want to organize a local American Promise Association, we take people through a four-part training. 
and we go into these communities or do it on Skype and uh, often a bit of both. And we have 24 of those. Imagine when there's hundreds of these all over the country, the kind right. of power we'll have. We, but we also, you don't have, if that sounds like too much, people can use our tools. Uh, we have monthly training calls. We yep. have uh, training for letters to the editor to educate the community about it, contacting your representatives, having meetings with your members of Congress. We train people specifically on how to meet and be, be successful in building a, a relationship with a member of Congress from the other party uh, and having a conversation about this issue that we can be unified on. And right. so there's lots of ways to get involved. And then the writing the 28th Amendment project, which you mentioned, is addressing the issue of what does the amendment actually say? There's two or three really solid versions of it. But, um, right. you know, in the end, we're going to need one. And that's got to right. be figured out in the next year or two. And so this writing the 28th Amendment project, our vision is, look, you know, it doesn't have to be the guys in wigs in Independence Hall anymore. Yeah. This is the digital age. Every American can be at the table in writing that's the right. 28th Amendment. And so that's what we do. And we're going to take it to um, every region in the country with town halls. And, again, you can see all about this on AmericanPromise.net and, and plug in. And we're going to make history here. And everyone can be a part of it. Excellent. Uh, that's wonderful. So I'm going to encourage everybody listening to this to go to American Progress. It's a great website. I myself promise. Have American Promise. promise. Sorry. Not Progress. Progress is good, but Promise progress is good too. That is not Amer the website. <laughs> American Promise, yes. American Promise. My, my apologies. Um, it's a great website. I've also participated in many of your calls. I always learn very interesting things on them. Um, so if you guys go out there to the website, you'll see all that information on there. You can sign up for the calls. They'll send you notices and all that sort of stuff. And then also Jeff has his own personal Twitter feed, which I always find very informative because he's a legal scholar. Um, what's your Twitter handle is your name, right? It's uh, my name backwards. Somebody got my name first. So it's actually oh. at, Clement, yeah, <laughs> at Clement Jeff. So at C-L-E-M-E-N-T-S-J-E-F-F. -E -E Fantastic. So if you want to follow Jeff on Twitter and get updates on all of these things, you can do that. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate the work you are doing. I think it's important stuff. Probably thank the you, most Tina. important thing. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. I appreciate all you do, too. And uh, thanks for having me on. And it was great to talk with you. And look forward to doing it again. I'll keep you updated. Absolutely.